welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. This week, back into it, third annual coaching search. We're getting really good at this. Uh, <laughs> we're going to come at you with a, a coaching model, what makes a good head coach, put the different coaches that we have at our hiring disposal through that lens, uh, and talk about some of the other news, general manager-related news that is happening and percolating here in 49er land. But first, it is indeed that time of the podcast. It's the off-season. Uh, if we didn't drink before, we're going to drink heavily now. Uh, so, David, what's the second rotation now? Because you do a two-week rotation for beers, right? So what's on rotation right now? Um, this is actually going to be very disappointing. I'm not drinking anything right now. Like I got water here right That's now. unfortunate. Um, I, I have an yeah. old-fashioned... Um, I really want to do an ad for Luxardo cherries, kind of like ludicrous. It's like I like Luxardo cherries because I like them and they pay me for it. Um, yeah, they should. They should definitely pay us to like mention their name again. Um, absolutely, it'd be great. Um, yeah, it would be, but they're not. Not an official sponsor. Still drinking an old fashioned <laughs> now. Uh, and yes, I know. I used to think that a cherry in an old fashioned was blasphemy until I had one with a Luxardo cherry. Again, no muddling. That's just crazy. But let's get into it. Let's talk about what's happened news wise. Since we talked to Dan Hatman and talked about the GM candidates, and it is on the general manager front. One, the 49ers are now going to interview Cardinals Vice President of Player Personnel. And again, we are really good at names here on the Better Rivals podcast. So this is Terry McDonough. McDonough? Mc, Mc, I want to say McDonahue, but that, that that's a different dude. Yeah, um, that's what I want to say as well. And that's actually yeah. what I would have said if I didn't start to look at it a little bit more closely right now. It looks like Terry McDonut. Just not throw, let's just throw a T on there. Terry yeah. McD. Terry, um, Terry McD. Uh, so he is going to, he's set to interview on Friday. Now, Kent Somers, who is uh, the Matt Mayoko to the Arizona Cardinals beat. Uh, he basically said that while permission has been sought by the 49ers, it has yet to be granted, but he didn't expect there to be any barriers. He expected um, I them. I think later. In the I day, feel like I saw that, that that changed. Yeah, it may. Yeah. I mean, either way, it seems like the, there's seems to be he little reason interview. that wouldn't happen at this point. So here's here's my question for you, David. Is it weird that this name is coming up a little bit later in the process? And after an interview where Mike Nolan specifically called out him as a general manager candidate, and then a couple of days later, it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to interview him for uh, general manager. Is that weird at all? I mean, it might be a little weird. Um, I, I definitely thought it was more weird until I saw. So Cam Inman actually had a tweet because Tim Kawakami was going off and, and, you know, making a lot of the same points. And um, Cam Inman responded to him and said that he kind of doubts that that name just fell upon him because uh, someone that they both knew actually floated that name out there a couple weeks ago. So, um, you know, for whatever reason, this wasn't a name that was was leaked out early, um, but it doesn't seem as uh as coincidental as it did you know even earlier in the day uh that this was uh, just something that that was brought up because of what nolan was saying um and then also like i think i think uh there was a quote from nolan as well that says he is not spoken with I mean, which obviously you can take with a grain of salt like who knows uh if, if that's true or not but at least he has said publicly on the record that he's not spoken with jed york so yeah th- this is a, a general manager who I-, I didn't know who he was before his name started to surface and he there's a puff piece by John Weinfuss in ESPN that was written uh, early this year. And, and basically it was written, I think, just a week, week ago. And it, it talks about how he's ready to be a GM and, and it talks about his varied experience. 
He was actually a scouting intern with the 49ers in 1989 when they won Super Bowl 24. So he's familiar with with the glory years of the 49ers. And it seems like he has a varied experience. It seems like he knows what he's doing. Another guy, I think that that could be good based on what we know, at least based on the criteria that we like. So I don't think by any stretch he is someone who's not qualified to interview. And remember that there's and this is kind of what Dan talked about last week. There's 32 jobs. Right. There's only 32 openings, only maybe, you know, one to four or five of which open every year, if that. So the people who are ready and groomed to do this job, you know who they are. They're not hiding in the wood of work. It's not like some surprise candidate. You know who they are. And this is one of the guys who's been talked about in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's there's much else to add at this point. And I think with a lot of these guys, right, like like we talked about with Dan, it's it's really difficult to to have a good view of these guys and what's going on from the outside. Again, the same kind of group of names comes up because of, uh, you know, the, the, the committee and because of, like you mentioned, it's just, there are certain guys that, that are kind of groomed that have put their time in and now they're at the appropriate place within, uh, a successful organization to kind of have their names floated out there. And beyond that, we, we really don't know much about how well these guys are going to do once they get in that job. So let's continue to talk about people that we know nothing about. Uh, and let's talk about Tom Gamble for a minute, because, of course, the news today for from the 49ers is that Tom Gamble has been rumored to be on uh, Jed York's mind as a potential replacement. Now, this is something that's been reported on Niners Nation by uh, David Fuchillo, Fuch, as we affectionately call him. And he basically has it from a couple of different sources, both inside and outside the 49ers organization that Tom Gamble is indeed on the mind of Jed York as a potential replacement. A couple of things here that are worth noting. One, the report was not that Tom Gamble is definitely going to get the job. The report was that he, for whatever reason, keeps popping back into Jed York's mind, like perhaps an ex-girlfriend who gave you herpes or something like that. But yeah, that was the, <laughs> that, that just got real. Um, but he... It, it, so there's no guarantee that he's going to get the job or anything, but he's just someone that's come back to Jed York. And the other thing that's important is that Jed York, during his press conference, very much made it seem like Tom Gamble was not an option and not a candidate for general manager. So that's that's really the story here is that he is back, despite the fact that Jed York said that he was not a candidate. And so now here we are because, you know, Jed York and a Jed York. So. Really, the question I have for you, David, is does this surprise you at all? Does this kind of like Tom Gamble's not a candidate and then two weeks later, like, hmm, might be a candidate. Does that surprise you at all? Or is that something that you would be like, all right, that, that that's cool? I mean, I, I don't think it's cool, but I mean, it's not surprising. Uh, I, I think, you know, we've talked about for years now, like nothing that York does should be surprising. Like you should kind of just expect stupid bullshit like this. Um, you know, so I, I think in a sense that um him going back on a statement that he made what a week ago, you know, a little over a week ago now. Um, and, and appearing to like have somebody that he, again, very clearly dismissed, um, the idea of Tom Gamble being an option for the general manager position during that press conference. But, um, to assume that, you know, that holds any sort of weight, like is, is kind of naive at this point with Jed York. So, uh, I, I think that's really my only takeaway is that like, Okay, yeah, the the possibility of Jed York doing something that he said he wasn't going to do and doing, um, you know, something that I think a lot of people would view very negatively. Like, and again, I don't this is nothing really to me against Tom Gamble, like in whether he would be a good uh, person for that job or not. I, it's 
I, I think really trying to sell, you know, when you're selling fans and, and kind of everyone and, and you hear even like with Lewis Riddick, right? And he's talking about the job opening on, on TV and mentioning like how he's talking about a fresh Jed talking about a fresh start. And, you know, why wouldn't you take him at his word and all that sort of stuff as long as he holds up his end of the bargain there. And it's like, well, now he might not be doing that. And again, that shouldn't really be surprising. So Tom Gamble, I think it's important to look at, at a bit of his history and with, with general manager and, and scouting organizations, it's not always clear who is where, where a lot of the responsibility falls for drafting, picking or signing specific players. A couple of things that we do know about Tom Gamble, right? One, he was with the Colts from 1998 to 2004 with Bill Polian. So he rode the Peyton Manning crest that was 98 to 04 in terms of success. And he came aboard the 49ers in 2005 with Mike Nolan and Scott McLuhan. And he came on as a director of pro personnel. Now, directors of pro personnel are effectively responsible for scouting other NFL players to see whether or not you should sign them to free agent contracts um, or to see, you know, basically if they're people that you want to add to your org eventually when they become available. So I think it's important then to look at some of the notable failures and notable successes from 05 uh, and on when he was in charge of effectively scouting NFL players. For notable failures, because I like to start with the sucky parts, you've got Nate Clements, Jonas Jennings, Tully Spin Cycle Banticane, and Ashley Lalee, um, who I guess is most notable for being a badass in Madden. As uh, David shop Le- with that dude in Madden, it was like He's those Hawaiian, were, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. It, the very least, he went to Hawaii, like. Oh, I don't know if that makes, you know, I don't know if he's actually, I just confused his Um, college with his ethnicity, you know, no big deal. Yeah. No, no clue on that part. But, um, dude was a boss in Madden. Like that was there, like the, the 2000, like four, 2005, like when he was with Denver too, like you just, you just had those like tall receivers that could jump high and you could just like wreck shop with them. So Ashley Lee, Madden legend. Yeah, he was, uh, that was when we were, uh, trying to fix our wide receiver woes. Do you remember that? Uh, oh wait, wait, that's still, still the case. Still doing that. Yep, that's can. <laughs> basically, it's Michael Crabtree and Randy Moss, and from the end of the Terrell Owens era to now, I mean, Bolton. those are the those are the only two basically bright spots. Anquan Bolton. Oh yeah, Anquan Bolton. Can't forget that. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I'm just thinking. Randy like, Moss is not a bright spot. Randy Moss was for there, one year. He one was year decoy and, enough. Went he, to the Super Bowl. Whatever. Randy Moss broke was, a hand whatever uh yeah that's uh that's that's a that's not a lot that's not good yeah. uh now notable successes you've got to to KO spikes larry allen marcus douglas uh and of course the biggest one here justin smith so there's and those are just notable right those are the free agent signings there's there's a lot of other things that go into that in terms of value how much you pay you know i'd probably put nate clements up there because of the type of contract that he signed not just because of his performance um but yeah i mean th- this is someone who when you look at he, what he was in charge of here with the 49ers, it's, you know, it's kind of like internet shrug. Um, but he did oversee pro and college scouting in 2011 and 2012 with the 49ers and did the same thing in 2014-15 uh, with the Eagles. Um, and, and you've got a mixed bag of results there as well. I mean, you've got Lane Johnson, Zach Ertz, and then you've got Marcus Smith and Josh Huff. So it, it's kind of like in terms of actual results, there's it's it's kind of like a basically like, eh, I don't know. But he seems to be well-regarded and well-respected around the league. So I don't think it would be the end of the world if he ended up getting uh, if he ended up getting the job. I think what would be interesting is what that did for head of coaching candidates if he ended up, if he ended up getting the job. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it seems 
unlikely that I, I mean I don't know I actually probably don't have any basis to say that I don't it just feels like he would have more trouble attracting some of these candidates and and again we're kind of down to a, a few of them and we're going to get into um, kind of all of the the interviewed candidates and the rumored candidates here so far and, and kind of our thoughts on them but um, yeah I, I just don't know how that pairing works and uh, again like the appeal here and what made this disaster of a situation um, have some level of intrigue and appeal to outsiders was this this idea of a fresh start. And so I think you you throw that all away um, and you lose. I don't know that there's any credibility that they still have, but, you know, if there is some, you, you again, lose that. And uh, I, I think that's going to make it difficult to bring in uh, additional people if that's how things play out. So what's funny is that firing, firing Balky and keeping uh, Gamble was our odds-on favorite thing to happen before the offseason hit. We thought that he that Gamble was going to get promoted and that Kelly was going to get retained because of Gamble and Kelly's previous relationship. And and all of a sudden after Jed's presser, we were like, oh man, we're like it's clean slate, fresh start. Uh and now the rumors are percolating again. I you know the 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 cynic the cynic in me wants me to basically is telling me Jed York is thinking about this. And he floated it out to a couple of media people to see what the reception was to see if it was a move that he could, should, you know, or might make. I don't think he's that uh, fucking he's, smart. I think you're giving him way too much credit. I mean, he's <laughs> if, for someone who needs validation from national media, that sounds like something that he would do. But I mean, sure. It, like that. That's uh, what a like. I don't know. I guess there's n- it's, there's not a, a world where like a smart person is looking for that sort of validation. So no, uh, no. This, this is your this is your friend who is not sure whether or not, you know, a girl, like, it's socially acceptable to date this girl or to think she's cute. And and he looks over <laughs> to his buddy and he's like, hey, you know, how about Jenny, huh? Yeah, how about Jenny? And if all of his buddies go, no, what are you talking about? No, dude, come on, man. Then he's like, oh, no, I didn't think she was cute. I didn't think she was cute. I'm just saying, like, if I have four beers, right? Like, yeah, that's like that's all I'm saying. <laughs> like, that's that's what this seems like to me. Uh, I... I've- fucking hope so that's that's all i got uh well let's get to the head coaching candidates then let's talk about the the head coaching model who we think is available who we think is right and why because this is the topic du jour here at 4949 centennial Uh, i say that as though we're there or something um but so first of all let's talk a bit about what went into this so we said this is the third annual head coaching search both with 49ers and here at the better rivals podcast so we're getting fairly good at evaluating or at least thinking through the process of what head coaches we should hire. So there's some research that David did a couple of years ago because we've, again, we've been here once or twice before. And he did this after we fired Jim Harbaugh. And basically what David looked at was every head coaching tenure since 1994 when that head coach had a minimum of 15 games. So, sorry, interim coaches with two or three games under your belt ain't going to count unless you got hired for a full gig. So, basically, the goal was to see if we could identify any head coaching candidates at the time that they were hired, effectively establishing a model for traits that you could look for that might be a predictor for success. And David looked at a couple of variables. He looked at the age at which they were hired, whether they were an offensive or defensive-minded head coach, whether or not they were a first-time head coach or a retread, whether or not they were an internal promotion or whether or not they were looked at or whether or not they came through the college ranks, whether or not they kind of came from just like the, the whiz kid college coach, uh, Reed Chip Kelly. 
and the various success rates. And he looked at this kind of through the lens of a Pythagorean win expectation. And we talk about Pythagorean win a lot, but basically it, it reduces football to its most basic element. If you score more points than then you allow, you're going to win more games. And so there's a bunch of fancy math that goes into it, but that's basically the crux of it. Uh, and so when we talk about Pythagorean win percentage, that that's generally what we're talking about. We're talking about a team that's able to produce way more points than they allow, indicating that they're actually you know fairly good at football. So if that's the tee-up, if that's the setup, and you did this research a couple of years ago and you've updated it now up to this year, what were the biggest takeaways and, and what does that tell us then about the candidates that we're looking at this year? So I think there there's a few things. Um, you know, the the really the biggest thing to start with, and and it's hard to overemphasize this point, is that everyone sucks at at identifying good head coaching candidates. Like uh, it really isn't much better than a coin flip. Like you could actually probably argue that a coin flip might give you better odds of finding a good head coach than a bad one. Um, as long as one of the sides of the coin is not Tom Cable, I think you'll <laughs> oh, be okay. Oh, God. Yeah. I, I like this podcast. I have fun doing this podcast. <laughs> I want to keep doing this podcast. I mean, so do I, but Tom, I just don't think that I could... Oh, man, let's not go there yet. Um, <laughs> so, uh, basically, in, in that time frame, so again, since uh, 1994 here, which was when the, the salary cap was instituted, um, we've got 159 qualifying head coaching tenures at that point. Um, just shy of two thirds of those. So, uh, it's at 63.5%, I believe, um, fail to produce a record better than 500 in their tenure. Um, so again, most of these guys turn out to be bad or to fail, you know, due to the, it, it doesn't work due to a variety of circumstances, right? It could be a bad head coach. It could be a bad situation, like whatever it is, nearly two thirds of these head coaching hires don't work. And so that's kind of the, the big thing from the jump is that like, Hey, we're not, we don't have all the information from the outside, but even the guys that do have as much information as possible that are making these decisions aren't doing a good job of it. So with that in mind, uh, you know, we start to look at some of the other traits and the, the, the next big thing was that there wasn't like necessarily this set profile, right? Where there was like, yeah, these this guy checks all the boxes and and this pretty much only produces good head coaches and you really don't get any bad head coaches there like that. That sort of profile doesn't exist. You have uh, successful coaches that come from a variety of different backgrounds, you know, the offensive and defensive guys, different levels of experience, um, you know, all sorts of like different uh, organizations like being coming from a successful organization or a crappy organization. Um, you know, doesn't really make that much of a difference. I mean, we know, like, look at Mike McCarthy, right? He came uh, to the Packers after worst one of the worst in football. I mean, one of the worst teams like in NFL history in the, the, the 2005 49ers. So um, they, they kind of come from everywhere. But Super Bowl winning coach. There are a couple of things that I think, you know, that, that uh, have had a little bit more success. And the first thing is that, that head coaches with offensive backgrounds have been a little bit more successful than those with defensive backgrounds. So over the whole sample, um, offensive coaches are basically just over 500 in Pythagorean win percentage, um, whereas defensive coaches are at 487. So a little bit of a gap there. And then when you look at over the last decade, so since 2006, that gap actually gets bigger. So offensive coaches go up to 503 and defensive coaches go down to 464. So um, now, we've argued in the past on this podcast that Bill Belichick is kind of a unicorn and, and he traditionally is considered, you know, a defensive minded head coach, even though I think he is he he could be both. I mean, he is he is so good at knowing football 
that he is either. I think he's beyond categorization. But does and, the and defensive is, grouping? Yes, he absolutely. Does the defensive grouping include Bill Belichick in this case? Yes, not in the not in the second group, obviously, since he was hired um, before two thousand six. But um, in the the first group, over the whole sample, yes, Bill Belichick is there. So, um, and and you actually, when you look at the whole thing, a couple of the best coaches actually have defensive backgrounds. So um, Belichick, obviously. Um, But Tony Dungy and, uh, you know, obviously how much you want to attribute that tenure to Peyton Manning, uh, you could certainly make that argument, but he gets credit for for that time nonetheless. So uh, they have two of the highest Pythagorean win percentages um, in that sample. And so they definitely kind of bump up the rest of the defensive group a little bit. Um, But on the whole, you you have a little bit more success from from offensive coaches. Um, And the thing that was kind of getting to the next takeaway that was uh, a little surprising to me at the time was that uh, retreads are more successful than first time head coaches. And uh, I I think when you start to kind of uh, think about this a little bit more in depth, it does make some sense. Like a lot of times with first time head coaches, you know, they're kind of so eager to get that job that they end up in these really terrible situations. Right. They go to a team like the Browns or a team like the 49ers, you know, lately, or um, any one of these teams that have kind of been struggling for an extended period of time, right? You go to Jacksonville, like whatever it is, it's a, it's a really bad situation that's going to be uh, really difficult to turn around anyway, right? Even for a good head coach. So the odds are kind of stacked against them. So I think that certainly contributes. But there is, I think, also something to be said for, um, you know, a coach going to maybe one of those bad situations, uh, failing and, and being able to kind of step back, learn from those mistakes and figure out, you know, what went well, what didn't and where they need to improve. And then coming back the second time, maybe being a little bit more selective with uh, the situation that they're inserting themselves into um, and then going out and, and doing a little bit better. And and so I think that is kind of the sweet spot for me. I think once you get too far down the line, right, once you get to like your third and fourth and fifth opportunity or whatever it is, uh, somebody like Mike Shanahan right now, like what last year when his name was being floated out um, as an actual head coaching candidate. Uh, to me, that's a little ridiculous. Like at that point, uh, the, the likelihood that he's going to recreate some past glory is is very unlikely. Um, but that well, in this case, in this case, you're looking at really two coaches that kind of epitomize this one. And the most recent one is going to be Pete Carroll. Right? Pete Carroll is someone who was not considered a successful head coach his first go around. And goes back to USC, builds that program up, and then comes back to Seattle. And there's a lot of really, really good stories about Pete Carroll and how he learns from his mistakes. And I think this is, I think this probably has something to do with the the retreads being at a bit higher win percentage is that not everyone is really, really good at learning from their mistakes. But if you have a person who's kind of good at coaching, and they're also good at learning from their mistakes then they can improve upon their failures. Bill Belichick is actually, again, the other unicorn in this, in this sample that had the head coaching job in Cleveland and, you know, did some things pretty well, actually had them, you know, in contention for a playoff spot when, uh, when he was in Cleveland and then eventually gets fired and does this whole thing with New York. And then all of a sudden, you know, he gets up, he ends up with the Patriots and, and he ends up being the, the Bill Belichick that we now know and love. But I, I think there is, a there is something to be said about the ability to take your previous experience learn from your failures and then build off of that to a certain degree chip kelly did that this year right like he may have swung the pendulum too far in terms of the the likability spectrum but 
by and large, the reports from, from Chip Kelly this year at, with the 49ers were that he was very amicable. He was a coach that where players felt supported. He obviously had to deal with a very, very complicated and loaded race relations issue. And, and I think and I think the players in the locker room felt like he handled it with a plum. Now, did he handle everything correctly? No. Um, but and, and you know, and when it comes to account of accountability and, and, and the playbook and stuff like that, I think you've got Joe Staley and other players talking about how maybe that wasn't such a big deal. But the idea here is that if you can find a head coach who failed, who is able to learn from their mistakes, and that always that doesn't always happen, then you have a coach that is not only good but comes at a market value which you can get them at, which is unemployed or not employed at the head coaching position. And you basically get a lot of future value that you wouldn't get from a first-timer. Yeah, and so, you know, I think, and there's there's actually one other um, really good example there that I'm going to kind of save for later when we're talking about one of the, the specific candidates. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, again, on some level, it makes some sense. I, I don't think you want to go too far with it and, and go to guys that have just kind of been cycled through teams and, you know, is on their third or fourth team. I, I'm really not a big fan of going that direction, but, um, you know, guys on their second shot is kind of that sweet spot, uh, essentially. And so, uh, and then the other takeaway and, and before you get to kind of some of the bad stuff is that, um, experience in, in terms of years in the NFL doesn't really matter. There, there was no correlation between years of NFL experience and their Pythagorean win expectation, uh, as a head coach. So it, you know, you, again, guys that were in the league for hardly any time at all, because whether they came from college or they just were a young head coaching hire, you have some of those that have found success. And then you also have guys on the other end of the spectrum that were, you know, in the league for 15, 16, 18, 20 years before they finally got a head coaching job or before they got a head coaching job where they eventually went on to to succeed. So there wasn't much uh, in the way there that was too important, but experience and role does matter. So I, I think having experience, you know, at the coordinator level tends to be really important um, because when you look, uh, and, and I think these were probably the strongest takeaways of uh, anything that I looked at were two traits that you really want to stay away from. And that was one, positional coaches, um, which had a, a, a 448 Pythagorean win uh, percentage there, which was the second worst split that I looked at. Um, and then internal hires, which was the worst at a 430. So um, those two things are, are really some things that you just kind of want to avoid. And uh, it's funny slash sad you know looking back when i was kind of rereading through that the original article that i wrote and um and, and kind of refreshing on a lot of that stuff it's just like even then man jim tom Sewell was was easy to pick out as as somebody that just really wasn't going to be in his element as a head coach and i think it's just a it's it's too big of a jump right like n- what you do as a coordinator doesn't always necessarily uh translate directly to your ability to succeed as a head coach but you do take on more responsibility, right? And it's just kind of like uh, another step in terms of you're managing more people. You have to oversee more things. And so some of those more managerial aspects of the job, I think you get a little bit more of a taste of. Whereas when you're coming from position coach, you know, to head coach, it's just such a, a massive jump that it's hard, I think, for guys to to kind of do that in a single season. So those were kind of the the main takeaways there from from all of that research and Again, we're now on on year three of trying to apply that to the the current crop of candidates. 
I think one thing that's interesting about position coaches is you, you talk about that jump from being a position coach and having to deal with the day-to-day management and coaching of the drills and the players and then going to being effectively the CEO of a company and setting the vision and the direction of everything, it would be akin to a mid-level manager. If that, probably an individual contributor on your team, in your job, whatever job you are in right now, imagine the person who's in charge of doing all the work and then you give them the CEO job. Does that mean they're necessarily going to fail? No. But are they necessarily set up for success? Probably not, just because they don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, and but in this case, they're kind of guaranteed to fail. I mean, there's yeah. not really any. So like the two that you can tell me of, that Tony Sperano was not successful. No, there's only two that have like a decent, um, you know, win percentage there. And that was one Jim Caldwell, which that one's easy to explain. Peyton Manning. Um, and then two was Jeff Good Fisher. Oh, Jeff Fisher. Which That's right. You, you can actually even argue whether he qualifies. He was kind of a weird situation. So um, he had been a defensive coordinator before um, with like the Eagles and the Rams and then uh, took a step back and was a, the DB coach in San Francisco. And then I think he and then he took the same um, position in Houston. And then what happened was once uh, or no, he took the defensive coordinator position there. But it was like a weird thing, like all the promotions happened in one year so uh the head coach in in houston got fired mid-year fisher took over and then you know he he went on to stay there for like a decade too long so um those are really the only two guys that you can point to and again you can uh kind of argue whether either of them really qualifies considering the situation that they were in and when you think about the internal hires of course we have one very famous internal hire in 49ers history and that's going to be uh, George Seifer, but he falls outside of the sample because you're looking at coaches hired after 1995, I think, or 94. Four. He was hired in, uh, in of course, uh, 89 after the retirement of good old Bill Walsh. Now, you look at other, and I think that internal hires make sense when you have a franchise that is stable and has built up a, a cadre or stable of people. Um, I guess pun not intended at all, the, the stable pun, but I'll go ahead and take it. Um, the, what's interesting, I think, is is the most stable franchise in terms of head coaching tenure and number of head coaches is going to be the Pittsburgh Steelers. And when Cower retired, even they went outside of their own structure. And they could have they could have promoted a Dick LeBeau, but they didn't. They hired Mike Tomlin, who had just finished uh, his time, of course, as the defensive coordinator of the Minnesota Vikings. So even franchises that are really stable and have a head coach who's had a time to instill a program and a system even they often look outside of their four walls and do so with success because Mike Tomlin is another successful Super Bowl winning coach for Pittsburgh and he did not come from within their four walls. So while I think that that, that you don't, again, necessarily need to discount internal hires out of hand, I don't think that you're going to find many organizations like the one Bill Walsh built up, right? There's a reason that everyone tries to find finding the winning edge and that's because Bill Walsh was a program builder at the NFL level. And you're just not going to find that again, especially in today's NFL. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really kind of an apples to oranges comparison anyway. I mean, the league was so different. Like, that's why I really focused on on just what's happened since 94, because once the salary cap got there, I mean, that changed the entire, um, you know, world around team building and, uh, you know, some of the the restrictions you have to work with there. So, I, yeah, you're just not going to to go to into a team where, you know, you're taking over for a Hall of Famer and 
you have three quarterbacks on your roster that went on to be, you know, quality quarterbacks. Like it's just like teams aren't built that way anymore. It's, it's just, you're not going to find that situation. So um, yeah, I mean, those two things, again, position coaches, internal hires really have not been able to succeed kind of in the salary cap era NFL. So let's apply the model to the current head coaching candidates that we've got right now. And, and I being the, the cynical optimist will give you the best case comparison. David, you being the eternal realist who will literally invoke nuclear war, nuclear fucking Holocaust. If some of these options happen, um, then, well, then <laughs> so, so one thing, one note kind of on these comparisons. So these were, were again, things that kind of, I pulled from the research here and, and the, the comparisons aren't necessarily in, in terms of style, right? So like one of the first ones we're going to get to will probably like make your eyebrows raise a little bit. And cause you're just like, Whoa, those aren't, they, they don't seem like similar people at all. And it's not, we're not trying to find, uh, necessarily, um, you know, the same. So I'll kind of get to it, I guess, like the Anthony Lynn. So the best case, you know, comparison for him, for instance, was like a Mike Mart style. And obviously they have, you know, different sort of offensive backgrounds. They both get lumped into the offensive minded group, but it's really more like kind of what I was looking at there is, okay, yeah, broader offense, defense, um, experience, like time they'd spend as a coordinator, you know, those sort of things to try to get, um, you know, I guess just more measurable things that you can point to. Um, so some of them like that may look a little bit funny. You know, I tried to kind of pull out the best ones that I could. Um, I also looked at, uh, I kind of restricted the age range. So if a candidate, for instance, was going to be 45 at the time we would hire them, I looked at a, the four year range around that. So 41 to 40 or 43 to 47. Um, so that kind of limited the group. I was just trying to find like people that were at roughly the same points of their career, that had kind of similar experience at the time they were hired. We're going to start then. Uh, we're going to start coming in hot. We're going to start with the what is now officially the enemy of the podcast, and that's Tom Cable. Uh, because if you listen to last week's show, uh, David was dropping fire on the Tom Cable hire. And he was talking about how that was basically like it. <laughs> that would be it. That'd be the end of the podcast, at least in the iteration that included David, if Tom Cable were hired. Now, the only positive I can give you for tom cable well i can give you two one before the best case comparison uh is that there's actually not been an official interview scheduled for cable right it's it's just been rumored interest yep and and so if you're holding on to anything that's got to be it is that for whatever reason we actually don't interview the guy and uh and that's that so if indeed though we do interview him and we do hire him the best case comparison is that David completely ends the podcast, severs the cord. Both him and I go on to live a happy, footballless life, made up mostly of you know alcoholism, uh, Netflix shows, uh, you know craft beers, a, a shit ton of Luxardo cherries, and and I will probably <laughs> die in a glucomic coma of uh, maraschino cherry syrup. Um, it, yeah. I will I will actually make it. It won't be purple drink. It'll be cherry drink. It'll be promethazine <laughs> and Luxardo cherry juice. Uh, and, you know, T-Pain will do a rap song about it. And, uh, and it'll be great. I will make a lot of money from an iPhone app that licenses Luxardo cherries and promethazine and gives you recipes. And we'll all die happy. And that's it. That's basically <laughs> the best case scenario. 
I mean, the, the the worst case is that we all kind of slide into like a deep, deep depression and um, <laughs> our lives are never the same. And then our loved ones are just kind of like spend the rest of their days like wondering, what if the 49ers never hired Tom Cable? Like, would we have our loved one back? That's yeah, it would be That's, it would be yeah. a bit of a eulogy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a it's I think his nickname should be Tom Drops some Cable. You know, because like that, that's like a euphemism for poop in case you didn't catch that. It's yeah, you know, laying some cable. I'm just saying that out loud on on the Internet. Sounds weird when uh, you say it out loud. <laughs> uh, so, all right, let's let's put him through the model. Let's put him through the ringer and, and talk about. No, what... no, no. We're not actually putting him through the model because well, no. he's not a serious <laughs> contender. Pythagorean win percentage of similar candidates for him. Who gives a fuck? Notes for Tom Cable. Reminder. Fuck Tom Cable. Moving on to the next candidate. There's nothing to talk about here. I want to spend zero time talking about a world in which Tom Cable is the head coach of the 49ers. Um, so Trust me, if you could see David's face right now, right now, you would know that we need to move the fuck on. So uh, let's talk about go, Anthony Lynn. We're going Lynn. to Anthony Lynn. Let's talk about Anthony Lynn. So the, the ceiling for Anthony Lynn. Now, uh, of course, remember Anthony Lynn uh, is someone who is familiar to 49ers fans. Of course, he he coached here in San Francisco, uh, and now he's the offensive coordinator here in Buffalo, running effectively um, Greg Roman's running game, uh, but running it with a bit more effectiveness. And uh, and so he's he's the wonderkin coordinator. He's the offensive guy uh, who has an innovative and uh, you know fantastic offensive style that's gotten him a lot of accolades here in the NFL as of late. So he's a hotshot, right? He's a hotshot coordinator. So we think his best case comparison is going to be Mike Martz of the Rams or Chan Gailey when he was with the Cowboys. So that's going to be his comp. That's how you should think of this offensive, what is now, I guess, considered a, a kind of an offensive wonderkind who had a flash in the pan as an offensive coordinator who should be given the reins as a head coach. Yeah, and so the thing that you'll see, too, with these with these best and worst case comparisons is is really the huge range. And that, again, goes back to the very first takeaway, which is we kind of suck at this. Like, and, you know, as a, a collective football group, like identifying these guys is really hard. So um, you're, you're going to find successful candidates in most cases um, that fit a kind of a similar mold. And then you're going to find guys like uh, Chris Palmer from the Browns, who if you're wondering who the hell that is, you're not alone. Like I have no recollection of this person being a head coach in the national football league. Um, he exists in my mind solely as an entry on this spreadsheet. I thought that for a second, I thought we were talking about Arnold Palmer and I was like, Oh yeah, the iced tea guy. Um, uh, and, and <laughs> the then I was thinking guy, come on. Yeah. Come yeah, on. Well, I guess he played golf too. Right. But like, look, I don't, I don't even like golf. Um, I, I subscribe <laughs> to the George Carlin school of golf, which is you hit the ball, you find it game over, you win. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And, and then, uh, I guess who's the guy who, uh, God, Oh, you know, what? it's gonna, um, addicted to love. Wasn't he Palmer? Uh, God, hold on. You talk, yeah. I'll look it up. Um, and, and so when you look at, uh, so again, the other thing that I pulled was, uh, kind of Pythagorean Robert Palmer of, nailed it. No idea who that is either. Um, of, it's of a video similar candidates, right? So again, using kind it. of that criteria that I mentioned at the top, um, looking in a similar range, you know, um, offense or defense, similar sort of experience, um, whether they were a first time head coach or, or going to be a retread. Um, and so the, the percentage there for him or similar candidates was 491. That was 12 coaches that made it into that sample. 
Um, the thing here and the, the thing that's concerning, so we're kind of going, I put them in uh, rough order of preference for me. Um, you know, I don't know uh, for you, Oscar, whether the, the preference is going to be similar, but the, the, the thing that was the hesitation with Anthony Lynn um, really comes down to that experience. I mean, he was uh, named offensive coordinator finally just this year, you know, in the, you know, kind of after week one when they fired Greg Romer after week two, week one or two, one of those. Um, whenever they fired it was Greg like, Roman, it was week two because it was week. Th- I was I thought it was week three or four that Anthony Lynn took over. It was just a couple games. Like yeah, it was. I mean, it was really early on. But um, so that was his first time as a coordinator, and so um, in a lot of ways, you can almost look at him as kind of a positional coach. And so I think um, that's something that immediately kind of scares me off. You know, obviously he has a, a very good reputation around the league. It seems like he got uh, quite a few interviews, um, and he seems to be kind of like a a rising star sort of guy. I just would like to see his star rise a little bit more before I I take him too seriously as a head coaching candidate. Like he's one of those guys that I could see if he does end up with one of the jobs this year um, that does kind of struggle and then goes back and resets. And maybe he's going to be much better uh, kind of on the second go around. But right now uh, that makes me a little hesitant with him. Uh, It was week three that he took over as the offensive coordinator. Um, and, uh, incidentally, when you search Anthony Lynn, the first search is uh, that Google suggests is Anthony, Anthony Lynn bills. The second one is Anthony Lynn wife. What, what is wrong with you? Internet? What is wrong? Seriously? <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely, if you've heard me on the podcast before, you know that I care about experience and you know that I care about varied experience. And he was basically a running game coordinator forever before he became an offensive coordinator and then an interim head coach for one week. Um, so no, I, I fully agree with you there. Um, he is someone who I think I would like to see a bit more experience running an offense, um, especially one where, um, you know, he, he doesn't have, I'd like to see what he does with soup with not, with not perfect ingredients, I guess I would say. Um, but who knows if we're going to get that. Uh, apparently he might actually stay in Buffalo with Sean McDermott as an offensive coordinator. So that would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of would like to see that for him. Like, I think that would be yeah, uh, kind of the the better move because again, he's somebody that uh, has a very good reputation. Uh, I I just think he needs a little bit more time, um, in a more elevated role. Yeah, I mean, he has worked for you know several people: Romeo Cornell, Jack Del Rio, Bill Parcells, Rex Ryan, uh, Mike Shanahan. So he he does have a good bit of coaching kind of pedigree there, but nevertheless. Um, I think, again, he is someone that we think should should get a bit more seasoning, if you will. So we were going to spend some time talking about Vance Joseph, but he, of course, was hired as the head coach of the Denver Broncos. Um, and, and so we'll give you very quickly his best case, worst case, best case, Dan Quinn of the Falcons, worst case, David uh, was Mike Nolan. Um, and yeah, he actually was. I mean, he was kind of Vance Joseph to me really is the Anthony Lynn of the defensive side of the defense. Ball. Um, yep, only exactly. one year as a coordinator had been a DB coach. Um, pretty much his entire coaching career prior to that. Um, so, yeah, again, I just not quite sold on him yet. I wanted to see him have a little bit more time. But he actually, I think, you know, obviously going into a situation like Denver, uh, solid chance that he's going to be able to to succeed early on because they have a fantastic defense already. Um, you know, offensive coordinator hire is going to be big for him. But, um, you know, he certainly goes into a much better situation than the wide majority of first-time head coaches do. 
So let's get to the other interesting one. And this is someone who's probably circling the drain for the Los Angeles Rams. But that is if he gets hired, what would be the youngest head coach in NFL history? And that is Sean Babyface McVay. Uh, He would be 30 years old at the time of his hiring if he is indeed hired in this hiring cycle. Lane Kiffin would be the other youngest. He was hired at 31. And then, of course, you've got Raheem Morris, Dave Shula, uh, and a couple of other folks, which we'll get to here in a little bit. So when you think of young coaches that get hired, right, th- this is someone who is is a, another rising offensive star. And his comp, I think, is super interesting just based on what Sean McVay uh, or who Sean McVay has learned from. And that's John Gruden. His best case scenario would be John Gruden. John Gruden, of course, was another coach that was hired at a young age. He is currently the fifth youngest coach to be hired at the age of 34 for Oakland in 1998. Uh, He would end up being six if Sean McVay is hired. So Sean McVay, if you haven't or don't know much about him, he is someone who, uh, again, is a family friend of the Grudens. People say that his mannerisms and the way that he acts and looks is very much like John Gruden. He learned football and learned how to coach in the FFCA, right? The Failed Football Coaches of America, which is the organization that John Gruden started after he was fired from Tampa Bay, and he still maintains it to this day. It's basically an organization for coaches to get together and still keep coaching and learn about the game when they don't have jobs. So this is really a, a, an offensive wonderkind who has who has that John Gruden imprint. And so I think it's it's fair to say that his ceiling would indeed, both in terms of his age and his pedigree, his ceiling would be yeah, John Gruden. Yeah, I mean, he's the guy that you point to in terms of successful, you know, super young first time head coaches, right? Like that's um, kind of the guy He's really one of the only ones like there. there's not a lot of coaches uh, in the sample that we have that fits a similar, um, you know, kind of profile to Sean McVay. I mean, the worst case comparison um, is, you know, somebody that we're going to talk to uh, talk about here in just a little bit, which is Josh McDaniels, but Josh McDaniels the first time, right? So that's kind of the example of, the, you know, super young first time head coach um, considered to be, you know, very good offensive mind, like all of that type of stuff. Like that's the example gone wrong, right? That's the John Gruden gone wrong. So um, I think that's kind of your your gap. And again, obviously, that's a, a very, very wide gap. Um, Pythagorean win percentage of similar candidates, almost not even worth mentioning, because again, it's only those two coaches, I believe that were, uh, that came up and I had to kind of expand the age, I believe a little bit with him to, to try to find somebody else. So, uh, I mean, it's at five thirty-three. I mean, that's propped up entirely by Gruden. Um, not any, not a number to take away or put any, uh, sort of credence to, but I, I think, yeah, he's, he's certainly an interesting guy. Um, again, I, I probably want to stray more away from him. Um, just because of that experience factor, like he has, does have more time as a, as a coordinator. So, um, he's been offensive coordinator now for three seasons, three years, um, which is, is something, I mean, he kind of moved through the ranks pretty quickly. Um, but again, I, I, I really am kind of been scared off by a lot of these first time head coaches. I, I think waiting for the second go around tends to be kind of the better route to take unless there's, um, you know, just a, a very obvious example or, you know, I think there, you're going to have individual cases where it makes more sense. But in, in general, I think I kind of lean away from that. I go back and forth with McVeigh because I, I do think that, again, I agree that experience is important. I agree that varied experience is important. And, and he does have most of his experience from kind of one line, and that's going to be the Gruden 
you know, kind of influence as well as the Washington Redskins uh, time because he's got, he was an offensive assistant, tight ends, and then offensive coordinator with the Redskins. But he, here's the other part of McVay that I think is attractive. One is I know just from kind of job life experience that sometimes you go through these experiences where you go through effectively a boot camp for your job. And, and sometimes that super intense, you know, kind of 12 hour a day building bonds and relationships for, you know, three, four, five, six months kind of camp can really help solidify, identify and set the, the trajectory for what success looks like later. I, I look at some of the more charismatic and awesome executives that I've looked at that I've worked with and, and had the pleasure of kind of being around in, in the business world. And more often than not, they've got like one company or one time in their life where that was happening, where there was a bunch of really smart people in a room going through whatever shit they had to get through. And it's effectively like business boot camp. And, and that lasted for however long. And they were able to take the relationships that they built there and the learns that they had there. And, and they turned that into, you know, kind of whatever their career trajectory is. And they were the people that were able to succeed the first time because not everyone fails the first time, right? A lot of people do, but some people are able to succeed their first time. And, and that's the thing that props me up about Sean McVay. That's the thing that says, you know, if we were to hire him, I wouldn't be as upset as I would with another perhaps first time head coach that we're going to get to here in a second. But it, it, it's, it's that I think is the good part of McVay. The bad part of course, is that he is really young. I, I do think that, Experience matters, varied experience matters. And and I don't think that just knowing offense and knowing football is enough as a head coach. It just isn't. And and everything you hear about Sean McVay, you know, that there was a really good piece written on him in the Monday morning quarterback where he's talking about just watching film and grinding film. And they he even watches the nineteen eighty one NFC championship game with Joe Montana and he's talking about uh, 1819 Bob, which is the old terminology for an ISO, right? It's a, it's a back on a backer. That's why they call it a Bob. Um, so he's even using old school terminology, right? So he appeals to the football person in everyone, but I don't think that just simply being a football person is what makes you a good head coach. And, and especially when you're young that you, you don't know how to navigate an organization like, I don't know, one run by someone like Jed York who can easily turn around and stab you in the back at the littlest provocation. Um, so, you know, it, it, that's, that's the thing I think that that's my back and forth with Sean McVay. Would I be mad if we hired him? No. But is he my number one choice? No. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I see the upside there. Um, I would be very surprised if he were to be hired and to be overly successful in this first job. Like I, I just, the odds are, I think far like against him in this situation. Yeah. All right. So moving on to our next candidate then is going to be uh, someone else. He, he is basically another one of the last ones standing. It's Kyle, Kyle Shanahan. So Kyle Shanahan is again, another offensive based guy. Remember the model offensive coaches do a little bit better than defensive coaches. Uh, and he's now the current offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons. The Atlanta Falcons, of course, have a remarkable uh, offense this year. They are kind of ridiculous. They're like they're the team I want to see late in the playoffs uh, just rack up some points because I think they're a lot of fun to watch. But he has been in the league for uh, quite a bit. He started with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2004 uh, as a quality control coach. 
but this is another one of those offensive wonderkins. And so his best case scenario is again, John Gruden, someone who is, you know, kind of, he's fairly young. His age is 37 this year. Uh, and he's an offensive specialist. And so he's someone who, when you look at a, a similar season, ceiling, you're looking at someone like John Gruden. Yeah, and I think when you look at the the worst case um, for him, because he's a little bit older, right? So he would be, um, I believe, 37 at the, the time of hire, or 37 during next season. So during the 27 football season, um, yeah. whereas McVeigh again, would be 30 right now, 31 during the season next year. Um, so Marty Morningwig was kind of the worst case comparison that I picked out for him. Um, again, it was another, another guy that was young coach, very, um, high like reputation for having an offensive mind and kind of, kind of came from the West coast, uh, tree there and, and everything. So, you know, good reputation following him. Kyle Shanahan well, we talked about someone who has like consi- or, or experience in role. And Kyle Shanahan's been an offensive coordinator since 2008. That's what I was going to say. Kyle Shanahan's been, to me, he's, he's, he is a, a far more appealing version of Sean McVay. Like, he's been a coordinator as long as Sean McVay has been in the alive. NFL. Um, so, and, and again, he's still young. You're, you're only talking about, uh, you know, a six-year difference there. He still would be among the younger coaches uh, to be hired and in the league currently. So it's not like you're taking Kyle Shanahan over Sean McVay and all of a sudden you... Every the, the argument that everybody that likes McVeigh like, oh, I'd love to see them be able to to grow together and he could be the coach here for 30 years and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, to me, is, that to me is not an argument for why you want to hire the young guy. That to yeah. me is the I mean, reason a, you want to so, hire him on his second round. Yeah, absolutely. because he had that experience. He grew and then you get the best version of that individual later when he knows exactly what he did right and what he did wrong. Like that, that's, that's why retreads yeah. do better in the model, right, is because of that very reason. You don't want to be the first round. You don't want to be the oh, first totally. girlfriend. You um, want to be the one that they marry. And so Kyle Shanahan, to me, again, more appealing version of that. Um, he is the one guy, like, if we were going to step away from uh, kind of the retread model and looking for that guy that's on uh, his second go around here through through as a head coach, um, he would be the one I would be most excited about taking. I just think he, again, the experience is there more. I like what he does offensively more than what McVeigh does. Um, you know, I, I just think... Uh, that he's a, a better candidate right now. So, uh, yeah, he would be my my preference, I think, if uh, our number one guy didn't get it. Indeed. You look at someone like uh, Kyle Shanahan and you look at some of what he has been able to do um, as, as a coach. I mean, you look at the quarterbacks he's been able to get the most out of. I mean, he's been an offensive coordinator. You're looking now at Washington Redskins, right? He was... Uh, the guy who basically helped RG3 become RG3 for the one year that he was RG3, um, which I think we remember RG3's rookie year. And Washington really molded an offense around RG3, included a lot of his college concepts, gave him the things that he was comfortable doing. I think those are the hallmarks of a good coach and a good system. I would I would say that that's one of his larger successes. You look at the Houston Texans, when he was a quarterback's coach and an offensive coordinator, most important position in NFL is the quarterback. And this is someone who, of course, has coached that position and who's able to identify that position. Um, I mean, you look at his quarterbacks in Houston, and, and I think he was the coach in Houston during the, was that the TJ Yates year uh, where they had a, a playoff game with TJ Yates? Um, I, I'd have to go look it up yeah, to know specifically. To um, but I mean, this is this is a guy who has been able to mold offensive systems, 
you know, he's had bad teams from the Texans to the Browns, you know, to good teams. But even then, in terms of total yards, his offenses have finished no lower than 16th overall. Um, and and so, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where it, it's it's or, or no, he finished lower than 16th in two years, 2010 and 2014. Every other year that he's been a coordinator, uh, his offenses have been in the top 16. 2014 is with overall. the Browns, too, which barely counts like that's. Yeah. Um, I mean, wasn't that the Derek Anderson year? I don't remember. Um, for the record, though, looked up the Texans thing. Um, the Texans did not make the playoffs during his time there. So uh, he must had, have been like 2010, um, 2011. His first year, 26. Well, he was receivers coach there. So he was basically there from the time that Matt Schaub first got there, like early part, early Matt Schaub. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was Schaub. That's before Schaub became the rotating pick six. Um. And so, yeah, I, I just think that when you look at what he's been able to do with the talent uh, or lack thereof on rosters, I mean, you're talking about Cleveland, Houston. This is a guy who has been able to do it and sustain it um, at a really, really, you know, at, at a solid level, I think. And so this, to me, would be my second favorite pick yeah. for offensive uh, or for, for a head coach. And the good thing is, I mean, you, you look at Sean McDermott going to um, the Bills, and you look at Vance Joseph going to the Broncos. I mean, really, the 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 team that we're competing against at this point is San Diego. Like the, the, those are the two gigs I think that are. I mean, because McVeigh, uh, he's on his second interview now with the, Rams. with the Rams. I mean, it seems you know. Though I did see a report that the Rams plan on doing a second interview with like multiple candidates. So who knows? But because um, of course the Rams do. Yeah, it, that seems kind of like a, a I guess most likely destination for him right now. Um, so, yeah, it really comes down to, I think, uh, you know, probably the two guys that we like best anyway, and that's Shanahan and then Josh McDaniels. So let's get to the coup de gras, and that's going to be one of Mr. John, Mc, uh, John, Jesus, Josh McDaniels. Off to a great start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Off to a great start. Um, he, just like uh, Josh McDaniels in Denver. Right. Uh, so his his best case comparison, because, again, this is someone else who has varied experience, been in the league for uh, a good number of years. Now, how does he fit in the model? He is an offensive-minded head coach. He's in his 40s, remembering that the age bracket of, you know, kind of that 40 to 50 um, had one of the higher Pythagorean win percentages. Um, He is a retread, meaning that he has learned from, or he has, we hope that he has learned from his first stint as a head coach, and he can apply that to a second run. So he ticks off more of the boxes from that model than any of the other coaches. And, of course, he has learned from Bill Belichick. Uh, That's been most of his career, but... Um, he is someone who we think best case scenario is going to be someone like a Mike Shanahan. He comes from a vaunted system, comes from another head coach that's been very great, um, and and he can hopefully take his experience and apply it to a new role, and and that's going to be you know like the the ceiling, which is one Mister Mike Shanahan. Yeah, so I think that you know this was the the other comparison that I kind of alluded the example of uh, kind of the failed first time head coach with a really. Um, bad kind of reputation from the everything that happened during that tenure, right? Like this was the guy that kind of stuck out to me as a very good comparison for McDaniels as opposed to necessarily like somebody uh, like Belichick or like Pete Carroll. Um, obviously, they have the the offensive background, which makes them a little bit more similar. But um, yeah, I mean, Shanahan was he was fired um, in his second season with with Oakland, just kind of like McDaniels. Everyone was in Denver. seems to forget that he was a head coach in Oakland. Like yeah. that's I, I and I sometimes have to be reminded of that, too. Like he was or in Los Angeles, actually, because back then they were the L.A. Rams. 
Um, so or the God I damn it, all these remember. LA teams. Yeah, yeah, um, it's the LA Raiders. No, it, it was the LA Raiders, but yeah, because he replaced Tom Flores. And and so it's one of those things where you kind of forget that he was the head coach there with Al Davis kind of calling the shots and he got shit canned and all of a sudden he goes to be the offensive coordinator for Bill Walsh. And then, you know, this is the guy, you know, and love. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, while he was there kind of famously feuded with, with Al Davis and that was a very kind of sour thing. And, um, you know, he went back to kind of going back to, so when he was, he was a coordinator before, uh, the Raiders with Denver. So he was actually there um, kind of early on in John Elway's career. So, you know, kind of a, a similar comparison there to McDaniels early in his career, being there with Brady, going off, doing something else, failing kind of uh, miserably and, and very quickly in that new job. And then coming back to, you know, another uh, kind of great offensive system and, and a lot of talent offensively, right? So, with McDaniels, obviously, he went back to the same situation, went back to Brady and, and Belichick with the Patriots, and Shanahan went to uh, the 49ers and joined up with Steve Young and Jerry Rice and the fantastic right, 1994. It was George I said it was Bill Walsh, but it wasn't Bill Walsh. He, yeah. he joined in 92, and so at that point, it was George Seifert. Yeah, so we're talking like during that, you know, the the run there, early 90s into the, the 94 Super Bowl was kind of, I believe, his final year there. Yeah. Um, and that was and Steve Young actually has a really, really fun story about his relationship with Shanahan as an offensive coordinator, because that was, of course, when Steve Young reached you know his peak when he won his Super Bowl. And he talked about how they would run through all 300 plays pregame. And, and you know, Mike Shanahan would have him recite every single play, which there aren't 300 individual plays. It's probably like 40 or 50 or 60 plays with a bunch of different formations and tags, which gives you 300. But um he would run through every single play by memory because Steve Young has a photographic memory. And then at the end, Shanahan would go, do it again. And he would run through every single play again pregame. Um, if you haven't read Steve Young's biography, it's really good. Shout out to Steve Young for you know, writing books. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think it's something that just makes kind of a lot of sense. I think that was uh, something that, that really kind of stuck out to me as a similar sort of career path. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people... Are, are kind of immediately wanting to discount McDaniels based on, you know, what happened in Denver and kind of the fact, oh, he's never done anything outside of the, you know, outside of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and, and everything there. And um, make the case for him because the case against them is he's never done anything yeah, outside of Brady and Belichick. Easy, right? And and he was a D bag in Denver. Right. Like everyone's like, oh, I don't like him because of all the reports coming out of Denver. He, you know, the players didn't like him. The coach didn't like him. I hate Tim Tebow. I mean, like basically everything is thrown uh, against Josh McDaniels uh, because of his time in Denver. So help help people who want to jump on the McDaniels train, jump on that train. So I think um, the the first thing with him is it's it's very hard for humans to kind of overcome first impressions, right? With with everything like and I just think that the line of thinking that leads you to believe that McDaniels can't succeed and can't be a good head coach because of what he did in Denver would have, you know, again, made you we we listed some of the famous examples, right? Like you could have said this a lot of the same things about Belichick before he was hired in New England. You could have said a lot of the same things about Pete Carroll before he came back to the NFL um, about Mike Shanahan before he got the job uh, in, in Denver. And there are all of these examples, even if you extend it away from coaches, right? It's like. The idea that LeBron James isn't clutch. The idea that Tony Romo is a bad quarterback because he fumbled a snap early in his career in the playoffs. Like these sort of things that that get attached to a guy early are really hard for people to shake. And I and I get that. But 
the the reality is that it's not predictive of what they're going to do in the future basically at all um so you you kind of have to put that aside a little bit and uh it's you, you people can change right like again we don't know we don't know if he's going to if he's taken those steps i mean there was a very good article by Dan Pompey on Bleacher Report that kind of uh outlined some of the stuff that he's done kind of to to reflect on uh that time in Denver and what he would have done differently and um, you know, by all accounts right now, the stuff that you hear about him is that he is very different and he's um, really kind of made a made a much greater effort to be uh, be there on the personal front. Right. Like it was all kind of football, football, football when he was in Denver and he kind of alienated a lot of people. And um, he's realized that it takes more than that and that you need to be able to make that sort of personal connection with players or they're not going to want to play for you. Um, so I, I think that there are some indicators there, but we don't know until he actually gets that second opportunity, right? Whether he's made those changes and has done the things that he needs to do in order to be successful in his second time. But, uh, the argument is certainly there that, you know, that he has done that stuff. And then I think when you start getting beyond that, when you can put aside the Denver thing for a minute and look at what he brings to the table from a football perspective, I think, um, that he's, he's far and away the most qualified candidate that's available right now. Um, you well, when we talk about the kind of changing and molding your offensive system to the personnel, a lot of times that gets contri- that gets attributed to Bill Belichick. But someone still has to coordinate that offense. Someone still has to call those plays. Someone still has to make that happen. And from 2012 to now, that's been Josh McDaniels, and it, it was from it was there from 2006 to, to 2008 as well. So you, when you think of someone who's been able to vary the the offensive approach from run heavy to tight end heavy to spread to everything he's someone who's been able to do that and and he's also someone who if you think about kind of attracting or identifying other coaching talent he's also someone who's been able to do that as well yeah that was uh gonna be definitely one of my next points like the 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 staff that he assembled in denver was very impressive i mean uh, he was able to get Mike McCoy as his offensive coordinator. Adam Gase was his wide receivers coach. Um, Mike Nolan, for as much as we may you know, dislike him for what he was as a 49ers head coach, is a very good defensive coordinator. He was the defensive coordinator there under, under McDaniels. Um, had Ed Donatel as the secondary coach, who we're also familiar with. Um, so, yeah, he, he put together um, what was, by all means, a very good offensive staff. And I think that you know, the ability to do that then, but also like now I think he's very well respected. People know that he's a talented guy and I think it uh, makes it all that much easier to be able to uh, convince guys to, to be able to come and, you know, want to coach for him. And in this case, the, the one thing that is kind of the concern, I guess, is that if the Patriots go deep into the playoffs, right. And they go to the Super Bowl or they go to the AFC championship game and they can't make this higher official until a little bit later that that kind of, uh, delays the process of hiring all of your assistant coaches, which can kind of put you behind the eight ball for these teams that are uh, making their hires now. But, you know, there you would you do see scenarios where there's kind of like this, you know, wink, wink, handshake sort of agreement and guys are going to hold out oh, yeah. and stuff like that. So I think when you have a guy like McDaniels that, again, is um, proven to be able to put together that kind of staff and, and has a good reputation and um, is is well respected among others. It's easier to convince them to kind of hold out for a situation where they can join his staff as opposed to you know a, maybe a less proven sort of candidate. So um, yeah, I think you know again the the football stuff is really for me what kind of 
um, puts him though far away above the the other candidates. Like the ability to change up, you know, again, some of the the most impressive things we mentioned this during last week's episode isn't is like when Brady's been gone, right? It's the things that he did to make Matt Castle a competent quarterback the for Kobe an entire Brissette. year. Um, yeah, the, what that the, they didn't Jimmy completely Garoppolo. fall apart this year um, offensively when when Brady was out for the first four games. So situations like that where they've been without Brady, um, he's continued to be very impressive. So uh, I think there's yeah a lot to like on that front. I think he's going to be somebody that comes in and is able to uh, you know change what they do based on the personnel that they have. And, um, you know, like a good example for the 49ers, something that he's done um, with the Patriots is maybe with this offensive line, I think they have a lot of limitations with the group that they have, but they're not going to be able to overhaul that right away. So maybe now as opposed to a zone run game that in a vacuum, I think I like a little bit better. You know, I think I like the flexibility of that zone uh, run game more, but this Offensive line is probably a little bit better suited for more power stuff. So maybe you see that's, uh, you know, kind of an approach that they take there and something they could change up to get a little bit more out of the limited personnel that they have currently. So, um, yeah, I just like everything that he brings to the table from that front. I don't know that we actually mentioned it, but if his ceiling is Mike Shanahan, his floor is Steve Mariucci, who, again, is not a bad coach necessarily. But this is the the Lions, Lions iteration version. of yeah. Steve Mariucci, not the 49ers iteration of Steve Mariucci. Um, so this is uh, it's still weird to imagine him in blue. Uh, but, yeah, he was a coach for the Lions for a bit. Uh, and, hey, Matt Millen, good job. Uh, but he that that's probably his floor. So, you know, again, not a ter- not a bad floor, but, you know, kind of bad outcome when you look at the, the shape of the organization and, and what the lines were at that time. So th- this is definitely our number one uh, coach, our number one candidate, Josh McDaniels. Number two, of course, would be Kyle Shanahan. And for me, it's those two and everyone else. Yep. Like, I, like I think those two candidates are, are far and away um, head and shoulders above the rest of the candidates. And at this point, Again, really, you're looking at three jobs that are left open. You're looking at the Chargers, the Rams, and the Niners. And the Rams seem to be zeroing in on McVay. And the the word on the street, reportedly, is that Josh McDaniels views the 49ers as the best opportunity. And the Niners w- want Josh McDaniels, you know, remembering that you can't hire him until after probably the uh, AFC Championship game, uh, more than likely, because, frankly... Houston's not a real playoff team. Like, let's not pretend. Yeah, I mean, this is an this is going team. at least one more week. Like. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> it's going to go one more week, and and you can do a second interview uh, the week off between the AAC championship game and the Super Bowl. Um, so what what I would anticipate is I would anticipate if the if the Patriots win uh, against the Houston Texans, they will. Like, don't get me wrong. I want I want Houston to win. My wife's a Houston Texans fan. I want them to win just so we can figure this out and, and be done with it. But likely it'll be a second interview. That second interview will signal effectively that this is our guy and, and it will. And, and, and that will be that. I think you'll probably have some handshake agreements with assistant coaches. I think you'll probably have him say, look, I'm going to get the job. I have a wink, wink. Um, I want you on my staff and, and you'll probably have that happen. Um, I, I, I think that's hopefully what's happening, irrespective of the GM. I mean, we hear that Riddick is a package deal with McDaniels, but so that's, e- even if that's a question that ahead. I have for you, actually. Yeah. Regarding. So because I, I, it does seem like McDaniels is the guy right based on who's yeah. going elsewhere. 
um, who's left available and kind of all the reports suggesting that McDaniels likes the opportunity, that the 49ers like him. Like it, it seems like it's going that direction. So my, my question for you is if this does drag on a little bit, because I mean, there's a good chance, right? The Patriots go back to the Super Bowl or something. Um, do you think that a general manager is hired between now and then? Or do you think it kind of they, they wait on everything and kind of introduce this new package or, you know, if Gamble's involved, maybe uh, an old package. But do they do they introduce those two at the same time, provided McDaniels the option um, or do they get ahead of it on the GM? Because it it seems to be like you, you hear a lot of uh, reports about how they kind of want to get the coach first and get the coach's input on the general manager. Now, we we can be, I think, reasonably sure at this point that McDaniel's preference is um, going to be Lewis Riddick. I mean, uh, John Middlecoff mentioned today that, like, they've been talking about pairing up uh, at a job for, like, over a year now. Um, so, like, this is something that's kind of been in the works. They, they seem to believe that they can work really well together. So that's the kind of the direction it seems to be trending. But I guess uh, if, if we assume for a second that's where it goes... When do they make that announcement on the GM? I think if it were any other franchise and any other org, I would say they hire the GM. If you know you're gonna be, if you know you're gonna have a McDaniel's Riddick pairing, and you talk to Riddick and he says he's my coach, and and you know Dan Hatman said it last week, every GM candidate's gonna go in there with a list of coaches, and and if McDaniel's is at the top of Riddick's list. And you get the semblance from McDaniels that he also wants the job and he's putting things out there like, yes, I think it's the most attractive and that, get le- that gets leaked to someone. You hire Riddick and you basically plant your flag in the ground and you say, this is what we're going to do. And Riddick can get started. Riddick can go and talk to assistant coaches. Riddick can figure out what he's going to do with the uh, with the scouting staff. Riddick can start to lay the groundwork because, you know, he's talking to McDaniels and, you know, he has talked to McDaniels about it. If it were any other franchise, I would say that's what you do. It doesn't matter, you know, whether who is hired first or whatever. You know that's going to be the end result. That's what you do. But this is the 49ers, and this is the Jed York version of the 49ers. And I think Jed York wants to, A, present them together and, and say, look at what I've done. Look, this is my fiefdom. I did such a good job. Don't you guys agree? I got these guys. I want honesty. They're going to work together. They're besties. I think they're going um, to maybe do something about establishing a championship culture, maybe. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> and, and, and then I also think, too, that if, if he hires Riddick first, he's worried about giving the impression that Riddick is in some way, shape, or form above or has a reporting relationship with McDaniels. And so if he knows he's got both of them in the bag, he's going to wait and just hire them together as opposed to hire one before the other or hire them separately. And I think those are all the wrong decisions. I think that's the wrong thing to do, but I think that's the Jed thing to do. So I do think that we're going to have to wait on both until after the Chiefs, or I'm sorry, after the uh, the Patriots are out of the playoffs. I'm sorry, I just want the Chiefs to win. Um, and uh, and when that happens, I think then we'll hire both. Wait, why do you want the Chiefs to win? Because I because a I I think something like a Chiefs Green Bay Super Bowl would be fucking cool. Um, and, fuck. uh, yeah, but you know what? I just, I love, there, there's, there's an inner troll in me and I love the fact that Alex Smith 
could be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. I like here. Here's the thing. I, I want to troll people with Alex Smith, but I I want Andy Reid to get his ring, dude. Like I feel like he's a deserving individual. He got so close to the Philadelphia teams. He's a good coach. Yeah, you could I make agree. an argument even without a ring that he's a Hall of Fame coach. Um, you know, and and I think that again, it's an argument to be had, yeah. but I think that he is he is someone when I don't have a rooting interest in the playoffs and the Niners are out of it, so I don't have a rooting interest in the playoffs. I want good stories to win. And to me, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady winning like their umpteenth fucking Super Bowl is not a good story. That to me is not a good story. I want ring distribution. If it were up to me, I want Dan Marino to get a ring. Give that guy a ring. He fucking deserves one. This is why John Elway was such a good story because he it was his last two years in the league and he went back to back. That's a great way to go out. Steve Young, I'm glad he got his ring, right? I, I want these players that that these players and coaches that put in the work that are damn good at their job. I want them to get their shot in a league where so much comes down to chance and opportunity and turnovers and schedule, you know, because that's a lot of what goes into getting there. And, and, you know, I want the Frank Gores of the worlds to win their ring. I want, you know, I want these players to win because I think that's a good story. And to me, one of the best stories that that doesn't get talked about this year is 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 the Chiefs and Andy Reid, and I want him to say, "Yeah, that's right. I fucking won one with Alex Smith. <laughs> like he's gonna I mean, have that would be fucking impressive." Yep, um, and that's kind of my point, right? Is is I want a the inner troll in me wants to do that, and b I I want that team to to succeed because I think that it's good for football, and I think that you know I, I like Andy Reid, and and I think I, I also like Alex Smith. Yeah, I I mean I think I good stories are fun. I mean, they, and they can be fun. Um. I more than anything like watching the best football teams like give me Alabama Clemson, right? Like give me the teams that were clearly the best teams in good game, college football. Way. Damn good game all year long. Like though, those are the games that are fun to watch, right? Like for me this year, that's like, give me New England Cowboys Patriots. Uh, no, I give me Green, Green Bay, 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 New England. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Give me Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Super Bowl. Like, that's going to be a fucking awesome game to watch. Like, yes, Tom Brady and the Patriots and, and Belichick and everything is old and it's tired seeing them winning. And I get that. Like, I get that sentiment. But the reality is, like, with the Patriots is there's probably not a ton of years left of this. Right. We're, we're kind of getting to the final stages. Yeah, at I some know. Point. I've seen every um, single fucking year this shit. And and so like it's going to come to an end at some point. And so I'm kind of at the point where I, I want to enjoy watching, you know, those two kind of s- still compete at a super high level. And, and so, yeah, I like the, seeing, you know, Kansas City get there. That would be a good story. And it would be great for Andy Reid and, and all those guys. But they're not like the best. They're not the best football team, right? They're not one of the two, three best teams in, in football. Um, and so I think that diminishes the quality of the game even though the story might be a little bit better. I would, I would argue that the Steelers, if you want the best football teams, the Steelers, Steelers be, and that's the thing too, I think the Steelers better, are going to fucking roll over the Chiefs. Um, oh, yeah, I do too. I do too. Again, the good stories doesn't necessarily mean yeah. um, that that's what's going to happen, <laughs> sure. right? <laughs> There's a reason underdogs are a good story, and that's because they're not expected to win. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, and so when they do, it's a good story, but... I think if you're looking for the best football team in the AFC, that might be the Pittsburgh Steelers and not the New England Patriots because I think the Patriots Plus, yeah. benefited from their schedule. They benefited from their schedule. Yeah. And, and yes, it is great coaching, sure. 
but but they have one of the easiest pads to the AFC Championship game in in I think in my opinion in recent memory. I mean, they've got a first round bye because they're in a division that doesn't want to play football. The the Miami Dolphins, you know, of course had their their quarterback injured and and now all of a sudden things look a lot easier when you're going up against the Brock Osweiler led Houston Texans for F sake. And that see, that's the thing too, is not only has the schedule been easy, but it's been easy in a very specific way. That's good for them because you could argue yeah. the weakest uh, part of that team has been the, the pass defense, right? The run defense exactly. has been very good, but their pass defense has been uh, very suspect, but not challenged really. So like the entire second yeah. half of their schedule, I think like they barely played anybody that had, a competent quarterback so yeah getting to play brock osweiler like it's it's kind of kind of funny yeah I, I and that's why i think that like again that that's why i don't think that that's necessarily the best team in the afc i think at that that's point fair. you're kind of pulling towards team and story because at that point tom brady is a story tom brady performing the way that he's performed at the age of what 39 40 um, that's yeah. a story, I think. And and he is the best quarterback potentially in football right now. Sure. Um, arguably, I think you, I mean, Rogers. I think you can say that, yeah. you know, Rogers, right. Especially on a streak. But, but I think that that's, uh, if you want the best football, I'd say you want Steelers Packers or Steelers Cowboys. Yeah. yeah I think, yeah, I mean that, 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 uh, either one of those would be fantastic. I think the, the quarterback, like we, it, it seems kind of odd that, um, we haven't been able to get, you know, like with with Brady Manning, we got all of those great matchups in the regular season, in the AFC, like in the playoffs um, and stuff like that. Not in the Super Bowl. And uh, we, we just really haven't had that with Brady and Rodgers, right? Like obviously Rodgers is a little bit of a younger class there, but he's been on that caliber for a while now. And we just haven't gotten many of those matchups because in separate conferences, they only play once every four years, you know, like. It's just uh, not something that we see. So I, I would love to see that as a, a Super Bowl matchup. Look, I, I think before we kick the outro music here, uh, and we will do that, so think of a, a call to action uh, real quick. But here's here's the last point I will say on on Aaron Rodgers kind of making the Super Bowl. You, you already have Olivia Munn. You already have a <laughs> ring. Don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. <laughs> Spread the wealth, bro. Spread the wealth is all I'm saying. Uh, that, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. You can always follow me uh, on the Twitters at Better Rivals. Uh, David, where can they follow you? That's going to be at David Newman with an underscore. Indeedly doodly. Uh, and you can, I, I've tweeted out David's article on the, the profile for successful head coaches. And of course, that, that information, uh, I think you wrote it last year. Two years ago. Uh, or two years ago uh, in the lead up to the Tom Sula hire. All of the conclusions are the same. The data you heard on today's podcast was updated for, uh, of course, the, the last two years. But yeah, Numbers change slightly, but nothing, yeah. nothing major in terms of takeaways. None of the conclusions change, exactly. So definitely go give that a read. You can find it on my Twitter feed. Uh, and, and yeah, we'll. Uh, I don't know that we'll be here necessarily next week unless something happens. If we hire a coach or something, then of course we'll be here. But usually we go every other week, and at this point we're in a holding pattern. So yeah, we're kinda, can't kinda guarantee a podcast next week, but... We uh, we will definitely have one if there's some major news, and of course next week kicks off uh, first week of Scouting Academy. Yeah. Uh, so school starts next week, bro. Yeah, uh, ready. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty gonna ready too. Fun. We're gonna. I think we're gonna do quarterbacks first, which will be perfect because we go and talk about some quarterbacks. As we're it turns talk out, about we need Deshaun a Watson. quarterback. Yeah. Right. Again. <laughs> Again. Our our third annual. We need oh, a quarterback. <laughs> so Deshaun Watson, of course, we're gonna we're gonna do some film scouting on him. 
after we we learn how to scout quarterbacking uh, or uh, get better at scouting quarterbacks with Dan Hammond at the Scouting Academy, Trubisky, uh, Watson, we're going to do all of those things. So definitely stay tuned over the course of the offseason. We ain't going nowhere because football is indeed year-round. So uh, it was good hanging out. Uh, David, what's the call to action, man? What do you got? I've got nothing. Um, Oh, (laughs) let's go Ashley Lalee. Let's go hashtag Madden Legend. Ashley Lalee. Lalee Madden Madden Legend. Legend. All right. Madden Legend. Ashley Lalee Madden Legend. Hit us with it. If you've gotten to this point of the podcast, uh, then we know that uh, that you're here with us. Uh, (laughs) So... Thanks again for tuning in uh, and and stay peeped on the Twitters for uh, what's coming up next week. And as always, go Niners. I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.